Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Matt, this next, next segment is right down your alley. We're talking Bitcoin. As I look on my Bloomberg terminal here, XBT, uh, it's up 1% today to 55000 Call it $175 for the coin. Let's introduce Sam Safe. He's the founder and CEO of Purpose Investments. They're based in Toronto, Canada. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. I want to talk to you about your Purpose Bitcoin ETF. It's the world's first Bitcoin ETF backed by physically settled Bitcoin and it just crossed $1 billion in assets under management on its one-month anniversary. Talk to us about how the last month has gone for you guys. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, no, it's been quite exciting. Um, I mean, we knew it was going to be um, an interesting product to get out to the marketplace, being the first of its kind in the world. And, you know, I, I, I've been quite amazed by the um, one, of course, the, the global interest in, in the, uh, the product, but also just the continuous focus on its uniqueness. Um, and, you know, I think we're, uh, we're, we've been, you know, pleasantly surprised by, by such an amazing onboarding and, and the continuation of it. I mean, across a billion dollars and, in, in you know, ironically on its one month anniversary. Uh, and, uh, and then of course we've seen just a really rapid continued, uh, interest in the asset and, and, um, you know, look, I think innovation always wins in the long run. And I think that's mm. what this ultimately uh, proves. So Sam, lift up the hood for us and tell us how this, works mechanically how do you trade for example your bitcoin for the fund so yeah no it's look it's actually a really important uh, you know what sounds like a simple question but it's not as you know the 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 bitcoin asset digital assets in general uh trade uh in real time and settle in real time so they are instantaneous settlement and of course the traditional securities market trades um with a t plus one or t plus two please so t plus three so bridging that gap was an important thing. So what we do is we, of course, have the market makers uh, and the, uh, you know, call it the APs that are basically market making the ETF all throughout the day. They're accumulating the interest and demand. And then what we do is we work with them on, you know, when they have creations or we haven't had redemptions yet. But if we have redemptions, we are ultimately able to execute the Bitcoin in real time. Um, with them, uh, with them and, and our specific uh, traders. So we work with some of the best institutional traders in the over-the-counter market of Bitcoin, uh, you know, and uh, executing in, in the best execution prices we can get. Um, so talk to me about who is investing in your ETF. I'd be interested to hear kind of the mix between retail and, and maybe institutional. Yeah, we, look, we've seen a really strong kind of balance. Of course, retail um, continuously is looking for uh, unique ways to buy this asset. I mean, efficient ways, and this is a, the, the first of its kind in that way. But but we've also seen some really good uh, both active trading institutions plus um, uh, long-term fundamental investors coming to the to the vehicle as well. So you know we've had uh, a number of institutions that had been looking for an easy way to buy you know Bitcoin, but had been struggling because. You know, they either had to go up and set up their own institutional custody accounts with, let's say, a Gemini or other, um, or they had to go buy one of the closed-end funds like a GBTC and, you know, effectively have found this as a more efficient way to do so. So we're seeing that now trickle in, and that's actually been one of the big legs up in the last uh, couple of weeks. 
And I think we'll see that more specifically with some of the larger fundamental investors, institutional investors um, in the next couple of months as well. So we anticipate you know, pretty strong demand from the fundamental investors coming into Bitcoin through a vehicle like this. How does the regulation work? I mean, there are some very large countries that have not yet approved a Bitcoin ETF. So um, are, are all investors welcome? Do you have to somehow police that? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, look, I mean, it's a, a publicly listed vehicle. So uh, any investor with a brokerage account and who has access to the, the securities market can basically buy it. Um, you know, look at the regulators, uh, you know, have, have been going through uh, their own decisions on this asset for the last number of years. And if you go back to the sort of 2018 time, 2017 time, when we had a number of filings come to market in the U.S. and in Canada and globally, the regulators at that time had two concerns. The first was, of course, you know, was this an asset that we, you know, believe is legitimate and, and should, you know, be accessible by the broad investor base? And then two was, is the infrastructure there to enable a daily liquid and traded vehicle like this? I think, you know, back in 2017, 2018, they were right to have concerns about the latter concern, which is, you know, the infrastructure. It just wasn't there. And I think if they had said yes at that point, it would have been a disaster in many ways. But, but a lot has changed in the last number of years around the infrastructure. So we now have institutional-grade um, custodians. We have, you know, institutional trading. We have futures market. We have, you know, uh, broker-dealers who actually have direct linkages to the asset can trade it in real time and settle in real time with the custodian. So all this stuff has really changed and created a, a very unique ability to trade. I think the first question, though, of was this an asset that they, the regulators wanted to have, um, you know, investors have broad access to, that has also been going through – a really important discussion. And I think in Canada, the regulators felt comfortable that it was the time that institutions and investors were going to want to have access to this, and they were going to get it, even if it was in an unregulated way. And they felt, well, why not make it a regulated way? All right, Sam, great having you on. Fascinating to see this kind of development in the industry. Sam Seif there from the Purpose Bitcoin ETF. Let's bring in right now Bloomberg opinion columnist Joe Nocera. It takes a lot to get your own NI code on the Bloomberg terminal, um, but Joe has one. That should tell you how important uh, we consider his opinion. Joe, you're talking about unions saying they are back in favor and they need to seize the moment. Um, Is this about making America great again? Uh, I knew – I. They warned me that you guys were going to beat me up. So, uh, so let's let's let, no. It, it's about it's about trying to reduce income inequality, and it's and it's also trying to to understand you know why workers have had uh, so little leverage in terms of uh, uh, wage growth um, over the last you know quarter century. All right. So income inequality is a bad thing. We want to try and alleviate that. And wage growth is something that we all want to see. But you point out that um, private sector workers should emulate the public sector when it comes to organized labor. And I just wonder why the public sector worker should be a model. That is not what it says. It's uh, the only the only way that it should replicate the public sector is increasing their numbers. I mean, the public 33% 33% of public sector workers are unionized and 6.8, 6.3% of private sector union uh, workers are unionized. And, and the only point I was making about the comparison between public and private is that we'd like to see the private sector get higher, closer to 33%. But why? I'm, um, I'm wondering why, because the public sector doesn't seem like a great example, the shining. 
it's just it's a number. Hill. It's a number. Yeah. It's like you know, I, I'm not crazy about public sector unions either. Although you know they've done they've done okay in terms of wage wage growth. But um, you know, the teachers union. If you read my column, I've been I've been highly highly critical of the teachers union's unwillingness to go back to school, uh, even though schools are, are are probably the safest place you can you can be in this pandemic. No, it's not that at all. And, 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 and if you get sidetracked on that, it's sort of, you know, you, you're missing the point. The point is that, you know, Amazon workers, uh, uh, Walmart workers, uh, McDonald's workers, I mean, people who make craft money, you know, the only way they're going to do better is, is through a union, period, end of story. And, and the... The history of American labor since the 1940 absolutely proves that. Um, when when unions were strong, we had a we had a vibrant middle class, blue collar middle class, and as uh, unions have faded, that vibrancy has has faded as well. So, Joe. Again, the the labor narrative in my lifetime has been, as you just stated, kind of the, the, the steady decline of unionization in this country. We now have a Democratic White House. We now have Democratic Congress, albeit a very, very slightest of margins. Is this the time for something at the federal level, some legislation to be passed to kind of spur on unionization? Uh, well, the House has actually passed such a bill. Um, of course, on the party line. And it, it, it's basically a bill that, that tries to uh, give union organizers or workers trying to organize inside, uh, like an Amazon warehouse, um, a, a better shot. Not, you know, just try to make the playing field a little more even. The obvious, it's obvious that you can't pass a bill like that in the Senate so long as you have the filibuster. Uh, there's a lot of legislation that could pass the House and can't pass the Senate without, without getting rid of the filibuster. And the question is, you know, are the Democrats ultimately willing to give up the filibuster? At the moment, the answer is no. And so, you know, Bi- President Biden can do what he can in terms of jaw- jawboning, which he has done uh, vis-a-vis the Amazon uh, uh, effort in Alabama. But really, he can't do more than that as long as the filibuster exists. Now, we could have a whole show on the filibuster. I would love to have you on to talk about that. I think the Democrats would really regret giving it up if they then lost the majority. But in terms of um, labor, you know, my opinion doesn't matter, Joe, but my heart goes out to these gig workers, especially Uber drivers um, and the like. California gave them a big fat finger in November last year with Prop 22, why would a left-leaning state vote against, um, you know, a better livelihood for people like that? Well, that's a really good question. And and especially since um, uh, in, in Europe somewhere, they, they actually are, they are being considered employees. Yep, in London. Get, uh, in all those wages. I mean, you know, there are Uber drivers who, who like the, the, state, the situation the way it is as a part-time thing. And, you know, America, we don't do a good job of allowing people to be a part-time and still, uh, you know, get benefits like health insurance. You know, it's either, it's either you're a full-time employee, which a lot of these Uber drivers don't want to do, or you're part-time and you don't get anything. 
So, uh, you know, we need some kind of system that's in between. I don't know why the California uh, thing didn't pass. Um, you know, obviously Uber and Lyft, you know, pulled out all the stops, which is which is not not a surprise. Um, but you're right; it is a left leaning state, and you would have thought it, it might have happened. Yeah, Matt. My my take on that is. You know, people choose to be gig workers, and you think about when the gig economy when they had no other choice. No, it was at (laughs) historically low unemployment rates. Okay, Uh so these are people that, for whatever reason, chose the gig economy, and that allows these business models to flourish to the benefit of consumers, Airbnb, Uber, all those things. So there's certainly that argument to be made. So, uh, but I think it's going to come up again and again and again because it is key to those companies' uh, models. Joe, is there any reason to believe? Unionization rates will not continue to decline in this country. Um, yes, I do. I, I, I do think that there's a decent possibility that they'll rise. I mean, um, you know, you, you do have the Democrats in. You do have the president talking about Alabama. Um, let's see what happens with this Alabama effort. And you know, if if that were to pass, it would it would spark a union union organizations all over Amazon shops and probably started at Walmart as well. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, um, I don't think unions are dead in this country, uh, although they've been in decline for a very long time. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Chatting with you. Your column is fascinating. Joe Nocera, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read Joe's work and all the good work from our friends at Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or by typing in O-P-I-N, go on the terminal. Now, I have a little bit of a mini vacation this afternoon. Normally, I'm sure all of our listeners are driving either home or to work in order to watch my program on Bloomberg Television at 1 p.m. But today, I will be supplanted by Jay Powell and Janet Yellen. They'll be testifying in front of Congress. And here to help us... uh, gauge what to expect, what to watch, really. Ben Emmons, Managing Director of Global Macro Strategy at Medley Advisors. Ben, thanks for coming back on the program. What are you going to be most focused on in today's hearing? Hey, Matt. uh, Good to be be back on the show. Um, Yeah, I do think I want to focus on what exactly they see as the progress in the economy. That continues to be, I think, for the market, the puzzle to understand because as Ira Jersey earlier on your program actually mentioned, right, we have tidbits on what they expect about inflation and how long that could stay potentially above target. But the substantial progress is is something that I think also Congress will ask, like, you know, do you see that and how I know and how far does that need to be in order for you to then change your policy? I think that will be the key focus today, in addition to of course, the unemployment picture, which is which is key in that in that calculation, as uh, also Kaplan said this morning, right? They want to hit their benchmark on unemployment. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, Ben, because so much of the U.S. economy is tied towards the consumer and getting folks back to work here. Um, what do you think the Fed and and the, and the Treasury? How do you think they're thinking about uh, the unemployment picture in the U.S.? Is it something that can be you know, fixed relatively quickly post-pandemic, or is this something that might be a little bit more institutionalized? It's an interesting dynamic, Paul, because if you if you think about when Yellen was uh, having her, her testimony, you know, before coming to Treasury Secretary, she was very convinced that the U.S. would be back to full employment by next year. 
as the Fed has taken a more, I think, somewhat more conservative stance there, right? The, the multi-policy report outlined labor market disparity and goes in all the details of that and shows that, you know, that's significant slack and will take a while. So there's a bit of a bit of a dichotomy there between the two in terms of that view. In Janet Yellen, uh, Janet Yellen being the labor economist, seems to be pretty optimistic that this fiscal stimulus is powerful enough to get everybody back into the labor force and at work. So I think it is indeed a function of one, an institutionalized function of, you know, how you measure slack and how you at some point would say, yes, we're back to full employment. But it's another hand, just a function of very cyclical dynamic here in the economy that is it as the reopening doesn't get too much derailed and really opens the, the fiscal stimulus should do its work and people get back, get back into the labor force. Is this Fed uh, – does this Fed look at um, full employment different than any other Fed? I mean are they more focused on equality than another Fed? Are they more focused on wages than any other Fed? I think there's a change there, Matt, in terms of the previous episode when indeed the wages were, I think, an important part of the narrative in, let's say, the period of 2014 into 2016 to determine policy. Today it's, of course, this broad, inclusive – labor force uh, growth, right? as in we want to pull in as many people in as we could possibly do, because I think they have found out through all those sessions on the ground, right, the Fed Listens uh, uh, series that they did, that people really uh, emphasized, like, it's, it is obviously really important to have employment and to get as many people back in the labor force. So this broad inclusive definition, again, referring back to the monetary policy report, if you, you go in there, there's a good table on that, that actually shows how many people per type of jobs and per um, uh, was it um, um, population in terms of like Hispanic or black, etc. All these people, you know, are still on the sidelines, right? So I think this is the definition today. Get a broad, inclusive recovery there, and that will take some time still. Ben, you know, in the background still is the uh, chatter about the next round of fiscal stimulus. I think the number that's being bandied about these days is maybe $3 trillion over some period of time, maybe 10 years. How important is that fiscal stimulus plan to your economic recovery outlook? I think it's key, Paul, because, you know, this $1.9 trillion is, is a good effort in terms of getting the initial cyclical boost here for the next quarter to two quarters. But it is the more long-term investment in the economy that, that is key to get us really at a sustained track, let's say, back to the trend that we had in 2018 at a, close to 3% or higher. Um, and, and it's not factored in yet, I think, in many people's forecasts other than maybe some outliers that see that party happening already this year. There's a big political issue here too, of course, right? This infrastructure bill has more things included than just spending on infrastructure. It's climate change, it's inequality, it's those type of issues that come along. Um, so to get that full package approved will not be that straightforward. But if it does happen, it could significantly boost the uh, potential output for the U.S. because I would think that would be significant investment in infrastructure and, and the grid and everything else that we need. So, yeah, it's an important aspect going forward. Hey, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. As always, we always appreciate getting uh, your thoughts and perspective here. Again, as we prepare for Janet Yellen and uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell, we'll be testifying in front of Congress uh, in just uh, at the top of the hour. Maybe we will certainly bring that to you. Ben Emmons, Managing Director, Global Macro Strategy at Medley Advisors. 
I want to bring in right now Vince Signorella, our global macro strategist at Bloomberg, and Anand Srinivasan, the senior semiconductor and hardware analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, to talk about the problem getting chips, the supply chain issue, and the increase in price, the inflation issue, and whether or not this kind of inflation is transient or here to stay. Vince, let me get your take first because I know you have a um, a, a, a counter consensus take on it. Well, uh, a source of mine that I've been speaking with in uh, in San Francisco who specializes in uh, in tracking data chips and semiconductors and such has uh, been filling me in on some of the issues of late and saying that the expectation uh, for prices going uh, through this year is is going to increase in every quarter and carry into 2022. And from what he's seeing is essentially uh, the shortage in the industry is driving up prices. And when I asked him about, um, you know, that, you know, the contracts that are in place, especially in the large uh, corporations, you know, people like Apple, for instance, Ford Motor Company. Uh, and he says, yeah, they have contracts in place to set a price. Uh, but in reality, if, the, if these contracts are with companies in Taiwan, they don't actually have to sell it to them at their price. At that price, it's a supply and demand issue. And uh, recent prices, Apple, for instance, is, as he tells me, is scrambling for supply and can't get them because they were offered prices refused. And now the prices are higher and they're coming back and the suppliers are telling them, sorry, the, the, uh, the allocation has gone to someone else. So that type of frenzy, if you will, uh, the expectation is to drive prices up through the end of the year. And on the smaller margin suppliers, the people that supply Walmart and Amazon, they have to pass that cost along because they simply don't have the margin to, uh, to eat away and their profits to, to take that themselves. All right. So, Anand, I want to bring in you. Uh, you've been covering the semiconductor industry for decades. Explain to us what's going on here. How did this shortage come about and how long do you think it plays out? Yeah. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. So a couple of different things. right? So one of the things that we've been talking about with respect to the ship, chip shortage is that the pandemic has boosted demand. And the demand hasn't come from areas that we thought were um, going to be the demand spike. So, for example, PCs have been through the roof. So associated components of PCs, CPUs, memory, um, IO chips, display drivers have all uh, from a demand perspective, shot through the roof from second half of last year, and it's ongoing. So that's a big component. That's about, you know, PCs et al. PCs and um, servers are roughly about 30 to 35% of semiconductor consumption across different categories. Second, handsets have been very, very strong. Uh, despite the Huawei ban, there's been movement of market share, 5G, et cetera, and that demand has been very strong as well. So that's another... 35 or so percent of demand uh, for for semiconductors. Those two alone have been spiking uh, demand. Now, one of the things that we've also seen through the industry is supply has moved around. So autos were expected to fall off a cliff. They're roughly about 10 percent of semiconductor demand. So people cut back on autos. Come 3Q of last year, whoa, Nelly, uh, demand spiked again. But too late, we've already moved away from auto, so that um, area has been caught on the back foot. Um, so and that's the part, part I care the- about, Anand. I, I don't care about yeah. the PC demand. I'm fine using my old one. Uh, handset, doesn't matter. The cars are important because we're seeing ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 markups on dealer lots 
Um, is that going to are they going to get production back into line? Not anytime soon is the, is the short answer. Um, and um, you've, you've had some margots already under a, a little bit of a supply crunch. And, you know, this is this um, the, the adage of, you know, for the want of a horseshoe nail, the kingdom was was lost is a good one here because <laughs> these could all be 10 cent parts, two dollar parts. But as a result, you know, twenty to fifty to seventy thousand dollar cars are waiting for this last electronic component, despite its value, low value, in order to ship the product. And you're seeing a lot of that. And I don't know if you've seen this in industrial or certain types of, um, you know, very mundane household electronic items that are on back order and prices being marked up. So I agree with Vince's point in that you're going to see shortages. You're going to see delays, and you're going to see higher prices. And I, this is uh, most likely sustained through 2021, and perhaps may spill over into 2022, depending on whether demand is sustained. Some of this demand is perishable, um, but most of this demand, like auto demand, for example, is long-lasting. You're not going to buy, go out and buy a bicycle because you can't get your hands on a car. Um, so. <laughs> Either you buy it in 2Q or 3Q or, you know, you're going to be I bought annoyed, a new bike during this pandemic. All right, guys. I thank you very much. Too. This is going to be a big issue for this economy, and we'll certainly pay attention to it. Vince Signorella, global macro strategist for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone. And Anish Srinivasan, senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.